Okay, the title of today's topic is Who Disciplines Whom? What I was actually asked to do by Nancy was to uh, finish what I started a few weeks ago when we talked about uh, the three problems of Ezra and Nehemiah. So we're going to do that, but we're going to back up and, and look at the slides briefly that we, some of the slides we dealt with uh, before so that we have the the whole sequence, uh, and we'll be using that sequence at the end. So there are three theological problems in Ezra. The refusal of their neighbors who claimed to worship the same God to help them build the temple. So they wanted to help build the temple. These were the Samaritans. And uh, Zerubbabel and Joshua, the high priest, flatly refused. No, we will build it ourselves. And that caused all kinds of problems to the time of Jesus then there was the divorce of non-Jewish wives because of mixing the holy seed with the people of the land. And finally, the Sabbath reforms in Nehemiah is the one we did not get to. Because we ran out of time, and I ran out of time to fix that. So uh, we're going to work on that today, but we're also going to do kind of an overview of discipline and, and the nature of it and some theological issues with that. So this is the rebuilding of the temple. Um, this is the text we dealt with. And uh, this is how, right here, is how they responded. And then I tell what happened next. Uh, there was a conflict, and they were threatened with uh, being stopped by Xerxes, or Hazarwars, I should say. Um, and then... I suggested that maybe we should go to Zechariah to hear a prophetic voice in response to this problem. Uh, because Zechariah gives some key points that sound, and, and he's a contemporary, if you understand, of, of Zerubbabel and uh, Joshua. He suggests that they were to build the temple with grace. And he suggests that uh, it's not by might nor by power. It's not exercising force and forcing people out that helps to build the temple. It is by the Spirit. Uh, which, as we know from the New Testament, the fruit of the Spirit is uh, very different from might and power. Then we dealt with the issue of uh, foreign or pagan wives. And uh, in this case, we have actually two responses. Ezra weeps and prays, and then the lead, a, a leader of a head of house comes to him and says, you know, we really ought to send our foreign wives away. Why don't you get everybody together and, and have them do that? And so that's kind of what happened. But uh, Nehemiah had a different response. He scolded them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Ezra pulls out his hair. Uh, Nehemiah pulls out the, the <laughs> people in, in trouble. There. <laughs> I suggest, and so they decide to send away their wives. They actually covenant to do that. They, they make a covenant with God to do that. And took a solemn pledge. And they made a proclamation. And it doesn't say, actually, it doesn't describe how they send away their wives. There's nothing said about that. Or how the wives would be supported. Right. But I suggested that, once again, a prophetic voice might be helpful. And we went to Malachi. Chapter 2, and there's several hints that Malachi is dealing with exactly the situation. And I reference that here. 
Uh, I, I'm sorry we don't have time to go through that and discuss what we have for today, but I wanted to give you this context and remind you of it. Now we come to the problem we're going to discuss today. In those days, I saw people in Judah, this is Nehemiah talking, using the wine presses on Sabbath. They were also collecting piles of grain, loading them on donkeys as well as wine grapes, figs, and every kind of load. And then bringing them to Jerusalem on the Sabbath. I warned them at that time against selling food. In addition, people from Tyre who lived in the city were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them to the people of Judah on the Sabbath. This happened in Jerusalem itself. So I scolded the officials of Judah. What is this evil thing that you are doing, I asked. You are making the Sabbath impure. The word in Hebrew really means profane. Profaning the Sabbath. This is just what your ancestors did, and God brought all this evil upon us and upon the city, and now you are bringing more wrath upon Israel by making the Sabbath, or by profaning the Sabbath. So when it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I gave orders that the doors should be shut. I also ordered that they shouldn't be reopened until after the Sabbath. To make sure that no load would come into the city on the Sabbath, I stationed some of my own men at the gates. Once or twice, the traders and sellers of all kinds of merchandise spent the night outside the city, but I warned them, why are you spending the night by the wall? If you do that again, I will lay hands on you. At that point, they stopped coming on the Sabbath. I also commanded the Levites to purify themselves and to come and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath holy. So the Levites had to work on Sabbath. Uh, Remember this also in my favor of my God and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. Now I thought it would be instructive to look at the Sabbath commandment because obviously this is the basis uh, for what Nehemiah does. So remember the Sabbath day. This is my own translation. Remember the Sabbath day to make it holy. Six days you may labor and do all your work because the seventh day is Sabbath belonging to the Lord your God. You should not do any work on it, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male or female slave, nor the beast, nor the stranger that is within your gates. The stranger can be translated alien or, or immigrant. For in six days Yahweh made heaven, earth, sea, and everything that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. We're going to be coming back to that, I think, as we move forward. So now here are the discussion questions. This is not the only discussion question. There's one coming towards the end, but this is a start. And looking at the Sabbath commandment, isn't it true that concerns about what was happening in and outside of Jerusalem were justified? I mean, do we... we are, here at PUC, uh, we close the shower we close the market, we close everything down on Sabbath... Um, we don't keep it open. And, and we don't go around teaching classes and carrying out business. We believe Sabbath is a day of rest and worship. So isn't it justified that he has some concerns about that? Jim? Yes. My understanding of the thou shalt not do any work, work means that's something you could pay for. So you can, everybody's got to work to feed the animals and get the kids ready right. to work. But you shouldn't get paid for it. And the, the idea is here again. They can bring whatever they want to. They can't sell it. But, but they were selling it. Yeah. They were selling it. That was the that was the Somebody buying. Yeah, somebody's buying. And the exactly. Jews were the ones buying. Um, and they weren't outsiders. That's the thing. They were from Tyre. I mean, you don't catch that. These are 
non-Jews, non-religious right. people. They don't care about what God right. says. They care about what God says. <laughs> okay, and, uh, but of course, um, that raises another question, which we'll deal with at the end. So we might not question Nehemiah's concerns, but what about his method? Well, I think getting the pastors to do the work. I don't see any violation there. What was your question? So we might not question Nehemiah's concerns. It's the second question here. But what about his method? Well, what would you have had done? What alternative way would you have done that? There's a lot of alternatives. Can you think of any from the Old Testament? Yeah, destroy the people. No, alternative we're glad Nehemiah didn't use. Any other alternatives? You call down curses from God. Maybe they could have invited them into worship with them. That would be revolutionary, wouldn't it? Are you referring to the fact that if you're talking about outsiders as who he's keeping out, and he's not necessarily dealing with the people inside that are mine? Because he seems to be dealing with people bringing stuff in more than he It's an interesting point you make, and it feeds into the final question. Uh, so I, I'd like to have us keep that in mind. Any other ideas? What strikes me, and this is typical, I think, of the Second Temple period, what strikes me is that he doesn't consult with God about how to handle the situation. When Moses ever had a disciplinary problem, like the man picking up sticks on the Sabbath, and you, you may wince at the way he was dealt with, but you have to keep in mind that you're dealing with a region in a time when everybody was blameless. And they didn't blink an eyelid at violence. They didn't, work, didn't not have a problem, a moral problem, with using violence. The, the man picking up sticks. Moses put him in custody and went to God to deal with that. Uh, the man who blasphemed the name of God. Uh, he put him in custody and asked God what to deal with him. Uh, there's none of that in the Second Temple period. At least it's not recorded that way. Well, you're saying there's no trial. There's no trial, there's no uh, consulting, higher power. Um, but don't you not think because they already knew what to do? They didn't need to inquire from God. Remember the, the, the Torah says that it's been given to you now, use it, it's in your heart. So take it and use it. Yes, Paul, you, can, you can argue that, that he did this under inspiration. You can argue that. I have some questions about it because it deals with the final question. Um, so, who has the right? And here's my real question, because discipline was usually done by whom? And I, I'm going to fast forward to a slide. If you look at Ezra and Nehemiah alone, you have Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua doing the discipline. But they themselves are disciplined by Zechariah, if you follow my hypothesis. And the foreign wives, uh, Ezra, actually it's the people themselves, it comes from the grassroots, do the disciplining. There's not any evidence that they consulted God. Ezra just, he's been praying about it, and, and this seems to be God's answer, and so he goes with it. Nehemiah, 
it's a little farther out in that direction. Uh, but Malachi seems to come back and disciplines the discipliners. Um, now, when we come to the Sabbath, I, I can't find a prophet to deal with that. Okay? So I put, but with the three question marks. Now, if you look at a hierarchy of discipline, I already mentioned the first one. Moses most often appeals to God or consults God for his word before administering discipline. When Korah, Dathan, and Abiram rebel against Moses and Aaron, they fall on their faces before God. And then they receive from God what to do with them. And they follow through a plan, first using reason, using evidence, to try to help them see it when they were very obdurate, God took action. Like that we're dealing with. You're dealing with essentially a coup often is what you're dealing with with coordinating the Bible. This is national reality. Right, but I'm talking about times of discipline. I'm not talking about uh, I'm talking about apples, oranges, and bananas. Yeah. Wasn't the original plan that God was at the top of the pyramid? Well, I'm coming right to that. And then they introduced the intermediary where you can't even sacrifice to God without uh, going to the temple and, and, and the priest did the killing on the, sacri- I mean, on the altar. So the only way you could go to God or have, have communication is through the priest who made the rules. At that point they supposedly had all the all the um, the knowledge, so they could make the decision for God. That's exactly where I'm headed with this. That there, there was a sequence, and then it changed to the priest. Uh, we're we're talking about theocracy here. There's two kinds of the, two definitions of theocracy. Actually, two kinds of theocracy. One is God driven, directly from God to the people. The second, and that's what you have assigned, is a God-driven theocracy. Then you have a theocracy that is formed by religious leaders who lead into a theocratic kind of governance. The challenging is challenging God. What you have initially is the first kind, and then, as was pointed out, you have the second kind following. But what, what troubles me about this thing with Nehemiah, he's the one, he, the governor is the one who enforces religion. You don't have that, except in the reforms of Josiah, who worked with Jeremiah. So there was a prophet and a king who worked with Jeremiah, or Hezekiah, who worked with Isaiah. So you have still a prophetic voice and, and uh, one of the things I have to point out is before there was a king in Israel, occasional prophets played a role in disciplining, not usually the judges, except for possibly Gideon. So you're concerned as for a church state separation? Well, there seems to be that in the Old Testament. I, I, I'm looking through the evidence. Once Israel has a king, the prophets still played the role of disciplinary. 
Only a few righteous kings took the lead in Reformation, but they were led and supported by the prophets. Many of the prophets prophesied against or rebuked kings, and I name a few. If you wonder why Deborah is there, she, she rebuked Barak quite soundly, if you look at the text. So, here's my question, one, one of my questions. Does the Sabbath commandment forbid <coughs> resident aliens from working on Sabbath? The same thing is the stranger that he dates. That's what the stranger is, is an alien. Verse in the Bible says, if it's sin to you, it's sin, but it's not sin to them. It's only if they're within your gates. They're within your gates. Seems like it's pretty well. True. Okay, so Jerusalem has gates. All cities in Israel have gates. Is it those gates? Or is it the gates of your compound? Uh, keep in mind, the second millennium, when, when the commandments are given, the house of the Father meant that you had compounds with a it's kind of square or oval, uh, and you had rooms all around the compounds, and everybody in the family, including the servants, stayed in the compound. Is it the gates of the compound? Or is it the gates of the city? And what, what heightens this problem is that the Ten Commandments are addressed to you, masculine, singular, not plural. I'm very much bothered by the whole notion of uniformity and conformity. It's a means to that end that you have absolute authority. I'm just cantankerous enough that I want that authority to let me have a part of the big decision. In the Anglican Community Council a few years ago, there was a great question whether or not there should be any gasoline dispensed by the local station. And uh, there were some people that came to the council who were members of the community. And believe it or not, there are non Adventists here. Quite a few. And they wanted gasoline. Well, we could take the money and give it to charity. Uh, we could put a sign up and say, the Sabbath is made for man and not meant for the Sabbath and go down the hill. So finally some of us said, well, why don't we go ahead and do it? It was rather interesting, a few weeks later, the pumps were kept on so that credit cards, these devilish and absolutely uh, heathenistic pieces of plastic, could be inserted and gasoline could be taken without an Adventist footprint, fingerprint, anywhere near the place. Amen. I cannot see why having neighbors in an area that you lose track of the fact that you're there to help and be to one another rather than to be so strict that you dominate and control them.
because you think you are so absolutely right. I have never been so cocksure that I could tell other people what to do. I'm much more the idea that a wide river has eddies and flow and all this sort of thing. It still gets to the same place, but it has so much more of the sound and bubbles and it, it's just so much nicer. But there's no bathroom. And they stopped there and they went to have a bathroom. <laughs> and it's not open. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Not the station. Well, if you also apply that to your college, the college is relying more and more on having non Adventist Christian students to attend. So, is it fair to those students to try to enforce Sabbath rules? You're coming directly to the question. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, let me go ahead since we're, we're kind of jumping in. Yeah, the question that I have is what the commandment says is you shall not do any work. It doesn't say anything about exchanging money. <laughs> When I was a, uh -huh. a whole bunch of, well, maybe not a whole bunch. It's bad. When I was an academy student in Vincent uh, uh, School in India, I worked. I had more slides on this. <laughs> so, what I'm going to have to do is add them. Seventh day Adventists have long been believers that someday there's going to be enforcement of worship by external government. And we're very resistant to that. And we have in our general conference a religious liberty department. And in that religious liberty department, we have defended atheists, we have defended uh, people whose rights have been trampled on, like the Indians and you know, the Native Americans in Oregon who want to use peyote as a part of their worship. We have defended all these kind, different kinds of people because we believe in the right of people to worship according to their conscience or according to their beliefs. So, what do we do? How do we resolve that with Nehemiah enforcing the Sabbath on unbelievers? I think you're talking about a choice here. These outsiders came to them. I mean, these, these people are not victims. They're not. They, they came to the Jewish community and wanted to sell their wares on their holidays. And, you know, it wasn't like they could have come Sunday, they could have come the next day, but they came specifically on the Sabbath day. And if you're, if you're a Jew and you're coming back from being seven years of being disciplined, for being disobedient to God and not representing Him the way you're supposed to, and these guys show up and they start getting you to want to break the commandments and not represent God the way He wants to be represented, that represents a, a, a fundamental threat to your very existence and your very way of life. Right. And, and that's the problem. And that assumes that we're too immature to resist buying what someone's trying to sell. Yeah. There shouldn't be that temptation, though. I mean, that shouldn't even be a situation for something. But we live in a world of temptations, don't we? And how do we gain moral strength if we never have a temptation? If everybody just makes us in a, 
in a kind of uh, system where everybody goes to church on Sabbath, this is the way that we do things. Yeah. Well, it seems like there's a lot of similarities between when the children of Israel came out of Egypt and when they come out of captivity. Because what you have is very structured things going on. A lot of discipline going on because a very unkept nation has been living in totally didn't even know themselves. Now you're coming out of captivity for 70 years. You're talking about their wives being sent away because of their, what they do to corrupt their own belief system. So it sounds like what you have here is a, re, a, re, a returning to a much more rigid kind of enforcement. Well, doesn't that set the stage for something later? It sets the stage for a lot of things. But you see, this cycle here with God in the beginning starts out with He's communicating directly with us. And then it comes that we sin, it becomes there's an intermediary. And so, and then, then Christ comes, and now we have total access to God individually. And then we've gone back to having intermediaries again. Yeah. Um, and, and perhaps this really does set the stage for the conflict that Jesus has over the South, if you think about it. And I, I'm not saying that the concerns are unjustified. The concerns are justified. But it's the way, the method we're dealing with our dealing with. It's just the beginning of the Sadducees and the Pharisees and all the Pharisees of the So what we try to do is, is have as many laws to bind around the Sabbath to protect ourselves from temptation and to make ourselves obey. When the Sabbath at its very core is a fluid, I can use the river metaphor, it's a fluid day of the one day we get to stand up to the economic pressures of the world and, and the business pressures of the world and actually enjoy time to spend with the people, time to spend with God. Vicki, yeah. you have... Oh, I'm curious what that is. Um, was this something that was, was controlled and practiced prior to the exile? Or is this something post-exile um, franticness, um, concern about never going into exile again, so we're going to protect the very edges of the laws? It is. It is. This is based on fear. Fear that they will go backward to where they were before the exile. So this, this is a fear base. And, and the problem is, there's no trust in this model. We've got to save ourselves. We, it, we, we, there's no salvation by trust in God. Uh, it's, it's a save yourself kind of religion that we're dealing with. You touched on it just briefly about the, the purpose you hit on our purpose that it's the way we stand up to the economic pressures of the world and this constant go, 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 try to make, make, work, work, work. I think you've got to ask the question of what is God trying to accomplish on the Sabbath day? We tend to focus on working and not working, but the Sabbath is not about working and not working. It's about resting and not resting. And so when you're talking about rest and you focus on the rest, you can see that there's no conflict when Christ comes in. Later on, 
And what he's doing is healing on the Sabbath day. These are people that are oppressed by Satan. They're not enjoying their life. They're not working, but they're not resting either. They're not enjoying the Sabbath day. So here he is going around and relieving them and returning them back to the rest. Uh, one of the other things I studied, a guy named John Walton pointed out that rest is the idealized life that God intended for us. And so when the Sabbath comes in, you know, it gives us a burden from the, the, the sin of work. As work as we know it is a result of sin. And so God is saying, enjoy your life for this 24 hour time period is a gift from me. And so when Christ comes and he's undoing all the things that Satan has done to these people, they've been abused, they've been hurt, they, you know, the, the woman with the issue of blood, he doesn't on the Sabbath on purpose to assert his sovereignty over the creation and say, I want you to rest and enjoy your life. So Jesus doesn't go around enforcing Sabbath, does he? He exemplifies what Sabbath is. And he does that because the rabbis had built the nightmare put around the Sabbath. So he he uh, attempts to set the Sabbath free and that that uh, statement by Jesus, the Sabbath is made for man and not man for the Sabbath is a, a principle of all law. The laws of God are not made... Man was not made to keep the law of God. The law of God was made for the benefit of man. Uh, so it's a, it's, a, it's a very different way of looking at it. Some Testament times, uh, what about the watchmen of the city? Were they paid on Sabbath? Make sure they didn't just forget the job. Well, what about the Levites who had to serve in the temple? Who's their job? <laughs> well, I'm starting to say is when I was in the cabin, I was both on the serving crew and the dish crew uh, in the cafeteria. And we still had to serve and we still had to wash the dishes, but they would pay us on the questions here. Oh, that, the question I had was right there. Some of the Amazons historically believed that they should not obey the law by professed Christians. Were we to become the leaders of the world, would it be right for us to command all others to keep the seventh day Sabbath and make a law? Well, I'm going to argue with you. I think that you're talking about the worship aspect of the Sabbath. I don't think you can do that. But the rest aspect of the Sabbath, uh, you know, I don't think. But that's where it's going to start, isn't it? I was I was watching something on uh, a movie about France um, in the 16th century, and they were comparing the life of the king versus the life of the peasants. And something one of the peasants said was, "Do you know how what it's like to be a, a peasant your entire life, where you're working every day, every day, every day with no break?" And I thought what she said, I thought, no, you mean the Sabbath day. Right. And, and, okay, but if love cannot be commanded, that's a statement from these ages, it cannot be won by force or authority. Can rest 
really be commanded? Commanded, maybe. I think, first of all, the good news is that if we were the leaders of the world, that kind of law would just stay in committee for like a hundred years. So, <laughs> but more theoretically, uh, I think I'm just showing that I was trained by you, Morning. That any kind of authoritarian law contains within it its own deconstruction, right? Um, there's a prohibition against killing, and if you kill, the state will kill you for it. Uh, there's a prohibition against working on the Sabbath, and so we hire guards to prevent people from working on the plague. So if, you, if your law contains within it its own self-deconstruction, I suggest that says that law might not be just. Well, to me, it seems ironic to command rest. It just, it just to me that that is the, the trajectory of rest is an anti-economic, anti, even anti-authoritarian uh, model. Because an authoritarian model is paying people rest, and and you more likely make people work. And it just seems to me that it's anti, it's antithetical. That whole to say nothing of the fact that we are pinging on other people's belief system and conscience. It seems to me that we sometimes lose the principle for the individual action that makes us feel comfortable. The Sabbath is made for man. That assumes women, anybody. But it doesn't necessarily mean all men, all women. I think that some people are not going to observe Sabbath. And as odd as it might seem, there are people who differ from me in their ideas and probably never will become Sabbath keepers nor Seventh-day Adventists. Now, does that mean that they are bad? Does that mean that they are stupid? Yes. Does that mean that they are demonically, somewhere or another, uh, taken over and can't think straight? No, it just seems to me it means that they are different. But in so doing, they are also a potential danger to the organization of those who are Sabbath keepers. Seeing what these other people are doing, suddenly, where are they going when they're buying gasoline? Why did they suddenly make the pit stop and go into the bathroom, uh, as was mentioned here? In order to make your organization absolutely prophetically sealed, you've got to make sure that there are not going to be rival or other apparently different items out there that might be enjoyable, or that other people are doing and you're wondering, should they be doing it? Hmm. Much of what we have done is to ensure a denominational strength, purity, unity, whatever you want to call it. And that to me strikes at the very opposite of what the purpose of the Sabbath would be. It creates not something where people can see me and say, you know, that might be worthwhile. It says, I'm being coerced, or I'm being pushed out 
or some way or another, I'm being alienated because I'm not one of them. We encounter more and more over in Calistoga the idea of the quotes, people on the hill. You cannot imagine the number of items that come up, but two of them absolutely. All evidence, they don't eat meat. All evidence, shut down everything on Saturday. Now, it is fascinating that it's only recently we've had some people say, oh yeah, the Adventists, they've got that wonderful place to go up on the hill and go hiking. Yay. It's a fantastic <laughs> idea that the community does exist for that. We took some people to a concert up here. Well, we didn't know you had music up here. This is fantastic. We'll tell our friends. We have so long and so often been exclusive in fear of what's out there that we fail to understand these are basically human beings who have the same wants, the same desires, the same good qualities, the same bad qualities. In other words, they're quite human. And when our young people leave PUC and suddenly go into jobs, where they might be the only Adventist in the hospital, or they might be the one on the fire truck on a Sabbath afternoon, or whatever. How can they harmonize the separate and not the communal effort and happiness? I ran into this problem of how we're perceived. Uh, when I went to buy a car, this is actually quite a few years ago. Um, I went to Ford, Zumwalt Ford, and I was in with the person writing, uh, writing up the contract and <laughs> showing me what the price was, and she wanted to know uh, where I lived, and I said, anyone, and she kind of froze. <laughs> oh, so that's where the Seventh-day Adventists live, but you aren't Seventh-day Adventists, are you? <laughs> We've been having a nice discussion about, about Jesus and Christianity and, and what have you. And uh, I said, yes, I am. Well, uh, you don't work for the college students. And I said, uh, well, as a matter of fact, I do. She was like, oh, well, what do you teach? that I was so nice and not trying to get more money or less money out of that car uh, it really rocked her back it hasn't been very long probably 200 years when um, religion was not separate from politics was not separate from I mean it's just like science we have departments biology, physics, chemistry that wasn't always that way. Um, we've made that, those separations. And so today, we can separate religion. We could be religious or non-religious or whatever. And, you know, you could be a Republican, a Democrat. I mean, there are compartments today that people can accept you uh, if you agree on politics, but you don't agree on religion. It's a little bit easier. 
But the original plan was that people had a choice. God did not create us. I mean, that's a differentiating thing. God created us with a power akin to him, which is to choose. Um, he could have made us robots, but he didn't. So at some points that got, I think Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they talked to God directly. They had a personal relationship. It wasn't an organization, it wasn't corporate. But at some point it became corporate and um, it's been that way. Now the system movement, movement to uh, church and denomination. Um, so you touched on something that I, I showed a video about this last week and that's why he was. And how he actually was the first to argue that there was a wall between church and state. And you should not take this church and put it over that wall. Or take the state and put it over that wall. Uh, and Rowan Island had every kind of person in it. Uh, uh, I, I had descended from people from Rowan Island. That's one of the big Sheldon origins. And, and I'm related consequently or descended from almost everybody that was a Baptist <laughs> on Rhode Island. Uh, and one of them, my brother had been doing some genealogical research, and he came across a, an ancestor by the name of Zachary or Zachariah Rose. And Zachariah Rose was originally in Massachusetts. And uh, he got put in jail for uh, saying that the, the court had no jurisdiction over the church or over the conscience of the person. And he also tried to stop a whipping. <laughs> he, he got in trouble for that. Uh, and finally he migrated to Rhode Island where it was safe and he could be free. But I, I, I like to think that that very strong conviction uh, were increased to me somehow. Not genetically, but somehow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fascinated by where this started, which was kind of looking at historical changes over time, and then kind of have, in some ways, morphed into a very sophisticated apology, uh, and philosophical analysis. I'm curious, though, have you done any work, uh, particularly in the Old Testament, comparing what was happening in the theological and moral and development in Israel, particularly in the Old Testament, with what was happening in other civilizations around there, and then how that morphed into the New Testament, because the New Testament is essentially a, a completely different different religion. That was, that's a very long question. <laughs> very long response. What, what I'd like to do is kind of give you a map. So you have Egypt to the south, Egypt is, is a theocracy, pure theocracy. The Pharaoh is God. Uh, Israel uh, starts out as a theocracy with God leaving out of Egypt and, and uh, appearing on Mount Sinai and so on. But it's a different kind of theocracy because there's no king. They reach the promised land, they settle in, and they live in their little tribal communities and, and yes, they need judges now and then to help them with the enemy forces that are around them. But they're like a giant cell group 
or maybe a small cell group, it's better, uh, a cell group in the middle of the ancient Near East because they're strategically placed between the two great powers of Mesopotamia and Egypt. And, and it's, uh, it's ironic that they would have no king. I mean, you, you can't imagine, and in, in, uh, the scholars can't imagine them surviving without a king. So they want a king in order to lead them to war, in order to uh, be like the other nations around them. That's when they migrate from a pure theocracy to a union of religion and state. And even then, when God, when God uh, anoints Saul, he doesn't anoint him as a king. He anoints him as a chieftain. A nagi. The word for king is Melk. He's not a Melk. He's a nagi. And uh, he's supposed to be under the leadership of Samuel. He's supposed to let the prophet tell him what to do. And that's where the conflict begins between Saul and Samuel. Uh, it is who disciplines whom. It really is. If you go east to Mesopotamia, the basic model is not theocracy. There's no theocracy in Mesopotamia. It's more like the divine right of kings. It is a union of religion and state. That's why, that's one of the reasons why Revelation takes on battle. It is the origin of the union between religion and state. And early Adventists interpreted the fornication of Babylon with kings as the union of church and state. They actually use that in their argument. Uh, so that's just one area that I can relate to, uh, and, and it relates to this. So our, our time is about up. How do we apply that to the Southern Baptist Church today and why the man comes? Well, there's also, I mean, related to that is the difference in discipline when the offending party, so to speak, uh, is doing something that is harmful to other people or is doing something that isn't. It's just against the rules. Well, the problem is I have a long list of home and I forgot to bring it. <laughs> I wrote it about 10.30 now. <laughs> um, <clears throat> the problem is that there was no policy. That's bogus. There was a vote taken that denied policy. It did not establish a policy. And there was never a vote to discipline dissenters of policy. So the governance of structure of the Seventh Amnesty Church as outlined by Ellen White in the testimonies is that it starts with the grassroots of the church. Local church feeds in to delegation and the conference level. The conference level feeds into delegation on the union level. The union level feeds delegation into the general conference level. 
It was supposed to be grassroots up. So what we're on we're on a journey of a transition from where we've come, and, and I, I think we have to look at all of history, Adventist history, church history, every history, all the way back to Israel, as a trajectory where God is trying to be those taking and screaming forward <laughs> instead of backward. And so we're farther, we're farther than we should be, but we're going backwards. Um, so we're in, yes, Ken. Somebody I know said one time that Ellen White made some statement somewhere suggesting that it would be a shame if we had to come out of that one again. She said, this is what she said. She said, I hoped there would not have to be another coming out. Where did she say that? I'd have to really search it out. I, I live so fast. <laughs> and that's hard for me to I get these things in my head, but it's just that wonderful time. But she does, yeah, she does make statements. Gene, do you help the problem with what Nehemiah did? I do, because he's the state enforcing religion. He should have. Where is Ezra in this okay. whole story? But okay, let's compare what happened years later to the Jews, because there is he didn't do this. They were just. Relax, but got into exile, and the temple never would have been built. I'm not saying he shouldn't have done anything. I'm saying the way he did it is problem. He should, should have involved Ezra, mm -hmm. Ezra the priest. It should have been an integrated decision, not. So you're not advocating anything. You're advocating you don't like the method. I don't like the method. He used it's it's too reminiscent of. A church yeah. I promise to be short, which probably won't happen. <laughs> but your model, beginning at the base, everybody discussing, then going up to the next level, then up to the next level, and then up to the next level. There is something called democratic centrism which is a political model where you have discussion free and open at the lowest level. It moves to another, you use the term conference, let us go ahead and use that. There the items are discussed by a smaller group, are filtered and passed up to a smaller group, let's say the union. <laughs> I'm only using that as an example, not, not that I'm right. criticizing. And then it finally gets kicked up with the very smallest amount of filtered argument to the top, where a decision is made and word comes down. All levels will cease to discuss what has been that particular problem because the decision is made. You do not argue with the central authority. You can claim it's democratic because everyone's had a voice. You can claim that it's representative because everyone has had something. And you can claim that the correct decision is made by a few august and capable people at the top who then can give you the truth. Here's, here's what I would like to interject. 
We broke that model in 1901. We had no more conference president. And we voted to have unions which had their own constitution and bylaws, and it's buck stopped there. <coughs> then you're breaking that model down as long as it holds. Right. Sure loves. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, that, that whole, may, may I say, separation point has been reached over and over again. I'll further temper the argument and show my bias that that was used in Russia during the time of Stalin. And it begins with the local authority, it goes up to the uh, other authority, and finally ends in the Supreme Soviet. And so it is might makes right. The correct party is in charge. And the minions feel like they've contributed greatly to what's going on. <laughs> Sorry to color my mind. No, no, but your point is well taken, and that is why that is why that decision was made in 1901 yeah. to break that. So we were actually ahead of the game at, the, at one point. <laughs> Maybe the only point in our history. Well, our time is up. Uh, thank you all for discussing about Grace Father, we live in uncertain and difficult times. And as we look at how you have attempted to lead us, we really recognize that we need to watch closely how you have led us. We pray that you will help us as we study your word, that you study your word and as we attempt to apply it to our lives and to our situations. That you will help us to have clarity and understanding. And may we really fulfill the legacy and message that individually we will open the door, regardless of what the church may decide. In Jesus' name.